When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When we look at a religion and its development from a historical and scholarly perspective, rather than through a theological or apologetic lens, one of the most important aspects to keep in mind is the historical context in which the religion emerges. This is of course also true for the religion of Islam. The prophet Muhammad, on whom the Islamic religion is based, basically, um, lived and preached in Western Arabia in the 7th century. So what was the historical, social, religious, and intellectual context and, and environment uh, that led to this massive event? Or in more general terms, what was the religious landscape like in pre-Islamic Arabia? The classic or common narrative is pretty straightforward and simple. The Arabs were polytheistic pagans who worshipped many different gods before the arrival of Islam, after which everyone basically became monotheistic Muslims. But what are we basing this particular narrative on? Well, actually, the main source or sources that have been used both historically and mostly today also in describing pre-Islamic Arabia has actually been, on the one part, the Sira literature or the biography literature of the Prophet Muhammad, written uh, by Muslim authors a few centuries after his life. Furthermore, perhaps the most important source that we have is the text called Kitab al-Asnam, or the Book of Idols, written by Hisham ibn al-Kalbi in the 9th century. For obvious reasons, these sources are very problematic in several ways. They were, of course, written with a specific purpose in mind to legitimize the Islamic monotheistic tradition as triumphant or with the backwardness of the pre-Islamic Arabs. In the words of the scholar Ahmed al-Jalad, quote, Paganism was an established trope used to bring into sharp relief the distinction between Islamic practice and what came before. It goes without saying that these accounts are biased and polemical in nature, and that the people that are actually talked about, the, the people who actually 
practiced the polytheistic religions of pre-Islamic Arabia get to have no say in telling the story about their own religious tradition. But that isn't to say that everything that Ibn al-Kalbi or the Sira biographers write is inaccurate. Far from it, actually. A lot of the information that a person like Ibn al-Kalbi gives us is actually often confirmed by the archaeological evidence, and it's still a very good source to use. But to get a picture that is more balanced, nuanced, and historically accurate, we need to look elsewhere. Luckily for us, the last few years has seen an absolute explosion of activity when it comes to scholarship on uh, ancient Arabia. Archaeological excavations and expeditions are continuously conducted in northern Arabia and and other places, as well as by amateur archaeologists across the Arabian Peninsula, that are turning up some absolutely revolutionary findings. For example, many rock inscriptions from the ancient Arabs give us first-hand accounts of the culture and tradition and religion of this sort of lost culture. And once we start to look at the new scholarly and archaeological findings, a picture emerges that is a lot more complicated than the simple classical narrative that I presented at the beginning. So with the latest scholarly research in mind, let's take a look at the fascinating world of religion in pre-Islamic Arabia. Late antiquity was a very vibrant period, and Arabia was not isolated from the major historical events and happenings of the time. Indeed, scholars realize more and more just how much Arabia and the Arabs participated in the wider culture of the Middle East, being a major part of trade routes and often being vassals to great empires. Now, talking about pre-Islamic Arabia gives us pretty enormous spans of time in which things could, of course, differ and change a lot, but we're going to focus mainly on the period very shortly before the Prophet Muhammad, on the Eve of Islam, as it is sometimes called. The Middle East at this time was dominated by two major empires, the Byzantine or Eastern Roman Empire and the Sasanian Persian Empire, Arabia being basically sandwiched in between the two. The Byzantine Empire at this time were Christians, and the Sasanian Persians generally followed the Zoroastrian religion. An important aspect to remember is that the Arabs, quote-unquote, were not a unified and homogenous group of people at this time. Arabia consisted of a number of different tribes and clans whose affiliations and traditions could differ. For example, at this time were the Lachmids of northeastern Arabia, who allied themselves with the Sasanian Empire and were primarily polytheistic. On the other hand, there were the Ghazanids of northwestern Arabia, who functioned as a client state to the Byzantine Empire and who were mostly Christians. So already we can see a diversity here, and things get even more complicated. In general, looking at the various archaeological evidence that we have, like rock inscriptions for example, we can conclude that most of the inhabitants of the Arabian Peninsula historically did follow a kind of polytheism or paganism. Now, the details of this religious tradition is quite obscure and unknown, but we do know a few things. The ancient Arabs worshipped a number of different deities and gods. Some of these gods were associated with a specific place or with a specific tribe and so on. There were also sanctuaries for different deities located all around Arabia which worshippers could visit. Many of these deities also seem to have been representations of natural phenomena or abstract concepts. One example is the god Shems, which literally means sun. The historian Robert J. Hoyland writes, quote, 
Loosely, of course, the gods represented those forces that were important to the lives of their devotees but beyond their control. Rain, fertility, health, love, death, and so on. By seeking the favor of the gods, typically making some votive gift, one might thereby influence these forces. We also have many other famous deities, including Alat, a goddess of fertility probably similar to and possibly even linked with Aphrodite of the Greek pantheon and the Ishtar of Mesopotamian mythology. Alat is one of the deities that are mentioned the most in all of the rock carvings that have been found and clearly played a major role for the ancient Arabs. She's also one of the three goddesses that are actually mentioned in the Quran itself, alongside Manat and Al-Uzza, although recent scholarship suggests that the latter may have been identical to Alat and simply been a kind of title for this goddess. Another central deity appears to have been Rudao, associated with the moon and sometimes considered the father of Alat. Rudao was a powerful god who was particularly associated with the region of Chaldea in southern Mesopotamia. We also have Baal Samim, or simply Baal, a deity of rain and storm whose name we recognize from the Canaanite religion as depicted in the Bible. In any case, these are just a few examples of the many different gods that the Arabs would worship. As Hoyland suggested, these gods could be invoked for many different reasons, most commonly probably mundane things like good health or to help with various troubles in life. Take, for example, rock inscriptions such as these. Quote, o Rudao, help Aib with that which he desires. Or, O Alat, daughter of Rudao, deliver so-and-so from the year of war. Indeed, most of the rock carvings from ancient Arabia contains prayers like this. Prayers asking the gods for protection or security from their enemies or for, from other misfortunes. As I said earlier, certain gods could be associated with a specific tribe and act as the protector of that tribe, while other gods would be more universal and worshipped across a a wider uh, population, including gods like Alat and Rudao that I have mentioned. But we also find, of course, regional preferences, since the tribes and the various groups of Arabia differed on, on a number of accounts. So we find certain gods that are specifically popular in southern Arabia, while other gods are more popular in northern Arabia, and so on. It was a diverse religious uh, context or environment. We should also keep in mind not only that Arabia is a large place that contains many different groups that differed on a number of accounts, but also that the population of Arabia could live different lives. So some people, some Arabs were nomads who moved around, lived in in desert environments and so on, while others lived in developed city environments. And these different circumstances also, of course, affected the religious uh, traditions and religious practices that, uh, that the Arabs would partake in. Now, aside from these prayers, the deities were worshipped through various different rites. The worshippers or servants, called abd in Arabic, could make offerings to the gods, probably things such as food and, and so on, like in many other polytheistic traditions. Like in so many other cultures of antiquity, animal sacrifice appears to have played a major role in their religious rites. Animals, often camels, would be sacrificed before major events or to aid in the effectiveness of certain prayers, for example. 
there were also shrines dedicated to specific deities located in locations all around Arabia, and this is connected to another one of the most central and important rituals or, or rites or practices of the pre-Islamic Arabs, which was the pilgrimage. Pilgrimages, referred to as Hajj, just like in the Islamic equivalent, would be undertaken to a shrine at a specific time during the yearly calendar, like an annual festival or celebration. These shrines or special places were referred to as haram, or sanctuaries, where all forms of violence were forbidden. Presumably, one of these common shrines that were visited by pilgrims was the Kaaba in Mecca, something that the Islamic tradition itself affirms. The classic narrative is that the Kaaba in Mecca, thought by Muslims to have been built by Abraham himself, served as an important site of pilgrimage for people across Arabia, and that it housed the images of many different gods in the broader pantheon, before, of course, being liberated and once again dedicated to the one monotheistic god by Muhammad and the arrival of Islam. And our information about the general practices of pilgrimage in pre-Islamic times seems to corroborate this story. Other connections or similarities to the later Islamic tradition can be found in the rules relating to ritual purity. So before going on a pilgrimage or praying to a god or really before any kind of religious rite, the worshipper was expected to make ablutions and to purify himself and wash himself to enter a state of ritual purity. In general, we find that the religion of ancient Arabia is one that is in some ways familiar to an antique Middle Eastern context. There are other beliefs and practices that we don't have too much information about. For example, and as we have explored in a previous episode, the Arabs believed in other mysterious beings such as the jinn, ghost-like figures who would hang around abandoned ruins and dark places. We also know of various occult practices such as divination and techniques involving the evil eye. Poetry played a major role in the lives of the ancient Arabs, and poets were sometimes considered to be inspired by the divine beings to recite their verses, becoming almost like messengers for the gods. But even in less extravagant circumstances, poetry served an important function of storytelling and a literary form that held the highest of esteem in this culture. The most famous collection of pre-Islamic poetry, the Mu'allaqat, or Hanging Poems, is another important source for the culture and traditions of the Arabs at this time, as well as being some of the greatest literary achievements in the Arabic language. But so far I've only talked about polytheism, with gods like Alat and Rudaw and so on, but as it turns out, the religious landscape of ancient Arabia was a lot more complicated than that, and there were a lot of different religious traditions and movements that actually ex coexisted on this peninsula, especially in the last few centuries before the arrival of Islam. And this includes, as we will see, various forms of monotheism. Indeed, as we saw in the beginning, Arabia was very much involved in the wider political and social context of the Middle East at the time, including the cultures of the two great empires. By the 4th to 5th century, there existed many different religious groups on the Arabian Peninsula, including many Jewish tribes as well as Christians of various different denominations. Indeed, the Ghazanids, who were often vassals to the Byzantine Empire, followed a monophysite Christianity, and it is quite likely that there lived Christian groups further inside the peninsula as well, even if they weren't as numerous as the Jews. 
To a lesser degree, but still significant, there were also Zoroastrians living in Arabia at the time. So we get the picture of a quite diverse and complex religious milieu. So monotheism was actually quite common in Arabia at this time. But of course, this could differ from region to region and from different cities. For example, it seems that the city of Mecca was largely polytheistic, while the city of Yathrib, which later became known as Medina, housed a large amount of Jewish monotheistic communities. And the presence of monotheism in Arabia can also be seen very clearly in a lot of the archaeological evidence that we have. There even seems to have been monotheistic communities in Arabia that were neither Jewish nor Christian, but who considered themselves as belonging to a primeval, original monotheism of Abraham. In the Islamic tradition, this independent monotheistic community or group is known as the Hanifiya, although there is less evidence for them in the archaeological record. Now, looked at from a historical perspective and putting aside theological perspectives or narratives, we can see where some of these central aspects of the later Islamic religion comes from, including the name Allah for God, as well as other names. The primary name of God in Islam is Allah. The precise etymological origins of the name has been debated, but the majority of scholars, I would say even Muslims and non-Muslims, agree that it is probably an abbreviated form of al-ilah, meaning literally the god. Ilah being the Arabic word for god or divinity, and al being the definite article. And the archaeological record actually supports this. We have inscriptions by North Arabian Christians in pre-Islamic times that refer to their god precisely as Al-Ilah. And similarly, in southern Arabia, what is today Yemen, there appears to have been a period of monotheistic flourishing, either through the influence of Judaism and its adoption by the state, or through some independent form of monotheism. And in this South Arabian context, the monotheistic god was referred to as Rahmanan, now, in the South Arabian dialect, the definite article was not the prefix al, as in the northern equivalent or in classical Arabic, but rather the suffix an. So, if we transpose the name Rahmanan to classical Arabic, this name for God becomes Ar-Rahman, another one of the most primary names of God in Islam. And moreover, in this South Arabian context, God was also, very tellingly, called Ilahan, or through transposing, Al-Ilah. The abbreviated form Allah appears to have been the result of a certain Arabic dialect in western or northwestern Arabia, including perhaps the Hejaz. But we do find examples of this abbreviated form Allah in earlier evidence as well. In the Nabataean kingdom of northern Arabia, we find examples of the name Allah, both as parts of personal names like Abdullah, and indeed, Abdullah was, according to tradition, the name of the Prophet Muhammad's own father. But we also see the name Allah used independently in various prayers and rock carvings in the Nabataean script, even though it is quite rare. There is this inscription, for example, which states, quote, Which translates to, He made a burnt offering and swore by Allah, who is living, that he shall command with greatness. But the name Allah is also sometimes invoked alongside other deities. Quote, and he placed it under the protection of Kahl, Allah, and Attar of the East from strong and weak and purchase and pledge for all time. 
So what does this mean? Well, in the Islamic tradition, there is often the idea that the pre-Islamic Arabs did worship Allah, but that they did so alongside other lesser deities, and that this is the origins of the concept of shirk, or of associating partners with God, the, which is the greatest sin in the Islamic religion. Many scholars today even argue that the group referred to as the mushrikun in the Quran, usually translated as the polytheists, might actually be referring to other monotheistic groups that nonetheless did not follow a monotheist that was as strict as that of the Prophet Muhammad. In any case, what the archaeological evidence shows is that the name Allah did exist as a name for God in ancient times. Some scholars, including Al-Jalad, argue that the use of the word Allah in the polytheistic context may have simply referred to the most exalted god in a particular context. In any case, it seems clear, however, that the name derives from the title Al-Ilah, or the God, so commonly invoked by Christian inscriptions and in southern Arabia as well. Many features that would later become so important for the religion of Islam do appear in pre-Islamic Arabia both in polytheistic and monotheistic contexts. We have maybe even found an example of the Bismillah in a pre-Islamic inscription. In 2018, an inscription was found in the Adali region of Yemen, which seems to either say, taken transposing from South Arabian dialect into account, uh, quote, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim Rabb as-Samwat, which would translate as, in the name of God, the merciful and compassionate Lord of the heavens. With the exception of the last part, Lord of the heavens, this is the formula that starts every Quranic chapter or surah except for one and is a major aspect of the islamic religion however this is actually quite uncertain the inscription may in fact instead say quote bismillah rahman irhamma rabba samwat which would instead translate to in the name of god the merciful have mercy upon us lord of the heavens and this would clearly echo the words of the bible in any case we are clearly dealing with a monotheistic invocation here one that makes sense in the context of southern Arabia at the time, which had a strong flourishing of monotheism. Remember, the name of God, Rahmanan, or Rahman, being used commonly in the region at this time and reappearing in this particular invocation, as well as being under Christian rule at the time of the inscription's composition. So the inscription makes sense in a lot of ways. We can see that Arabia, by the time of the Prophet Muhammad, was a melting pot of various different religious and intellectual traditions, while the polytheism or paganism was probably the religion practiced by the majority of the population, there were still very strong monotheistic communities, including Jewish groups, Christians, as well as maybe even independent monotheistic groups like the Hanifiya that, that's talked about in the Islamic tradition. Clearly then, things aren't as simple as the narrative that I presented at the beginning, and we can perhaps begin to understand the context in which a prophet by the name of Muhammad would appear on the scene and change world history. I hope you enjoyed this dive into ancient Arabia and its religious traditions. A lot of the material used here was based on the works of the epigraphist, philologist, and historian of language Ahmed al-Jalad, whose works I highly recommend you check out. As always, I will leave a list of sources in the description.
For those especially interested in the languages and cultures of pre-Islamic Arabia, I will also leave links to two very important databases on the South Arabian and North Arabian inscriptions. One is the Digital Archive for the Study of Pre-Islamic Arabian Inscriptions, and the other is Oceana, which is also a database for, for inscriptions. So you can find all of that in the description as well. And I'll see you next time. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.